and they asked me, what do you want to play? It was the first time in my life somebody asked me really what I want to do. My answer was electric guitar. I wanted to be Slash from Guns N' Roses. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Story Mark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, Chief Conductor and Artistic Director of the Jerusalem Orchestra East and West, Tom Cohen. Tom Cohen is the founder of the Jerusalem Orchestra East and West, which performs arrangements that blend traditional elements of Arab music with Western harmony and aesthetics. He has gone on to create similar orchestras throughout the world in countries ranging from Canada to Belgium to Morocco. I'm inspired by Tom's vision and philosophy. To him, the language of music is universal. A powerful tool used to illuminate the connectedness of the human power experience. Tom grew up in Beersheva, which, as he explains, had a direct impact on his unique ambitions. I had huge luck being brought up in the southern city of Beersheva because it was big enough to... to not feel like I'm living in some kind of a distant village somewhere that is not connected to civilization. And at the same time, it was far enough from the center for me to grow up with the big drive to achieve and to get to things that at the time seemed very, very far for me and very, very unreachable. I also think there is something about the population that I was around and my neighbors and my friends and all the people I grew up with that influenced my character a lot because of the neighborhood I grew up with, which is not the best neighborhood, financially speaking. Then at the same time, being brought up into the world of Western classical music, for example, by my mother and going to the conservatory and studying music. Because of this interesting combination, I came out this kind of character that is able to speak more than one kind of Hebrew. This specifically enables me a lot within Israel and, and within communications in general today, dealing with people from other parts of the world even. What was the first time that you were exposed to music? I think music was a substantial part of my life always. My mom used to be a ballet dancer. And I don't know if it's sad or it's just the truth. She stopped dancing when she became pregnant with me. So I had something to do with my mom giving up her artistic inspirations and at the same time putting all of this love to art and to culture in me. For her, it was never a surprise that I became a conductor because I used to conduct from a very young age at the living room, listening to music and, and showing her, look, look, now this instrument will come in and look, this will happen now and now. analyzing what we are listening to in the different layers. I think that music has been a big present that I got and, and something that is the deepest core of what is me. So no one in your family played any instrument or was involved in music? No. Both my parents love music. Music was very much present in our house. And I think that one of the things that really brought me up to who I am today as an artist is is the fact that nobody in our house ex- ever explained to me that there is a difference between the different styles of music. There is music that is considered to be quality music and there is music that considered less quality or important or meaningful. 
We were listening to Um Kaltum, we were listening to Camille Saint-Saëns, we would listen to Stefan Grappelli or to Frank Zappa or the Beatles and different genres of music. And I was really lucky to, only when I was 18 and I got to the Jerusalem Academy of Music and Dance, I suddenly discovered that the rest of the world looks at music in a different way. There are levels. There is music that is considered high and music that is considered low. Because I came with no prejudgments, I very quickly saw the contradictions within the definitions of people because on the one hand, if you're talking about music with the superficial lyrics about love and four chords between the chorus and the refrain, you're basically describing an operetta by Rossini which everybody would agree that is classical music. And at the same time, if you're talking about very complex music that has multi-rhythmic patterns that constantly change and that are very hard even to be written on paper, you're describing now a music of the tribes of North Africa, of Morocco. So very quickly I understood that the definitions are kind of mixed up and that it became first unconsciously and Later with the years, very consciously, my life mission to try and create this musical language that in a way melts down the borders between art and entertainment. There is this very strange idea of people that something that is artistic should not be entertaining and vice versa. And me as an artist, I'm only interested in creating something that is very artistic, but at the same time, very entertaining. So what did you play as a kid? When I was four years old, I very much wanted to play an instrument already. And my mom decided that I'll play the recorder. You know, it's the recorder, the small flute. When we moved to Beersheva, she took me to the municipal conservatory and told them the boy wants to play recorder. And Beersheva, being Beersheva, they told her, we don't have recorder here. And they asked me, what do you want to play? It was the first time in my life somebody asked me really what I want to do. My answer was electric guitar. I wanted to be Slash from Guns N' Roses. And somebody told me, well, your hands are too small for the electric guitar. You can come back when you're 12. Telling an eight-year-old you can come back when you're 12 is like I tell you now you can come back when you're 3,000. It's, <laughs> it's something that you cannot even grasp. And I said, no, but I want now to play the electric guitar. And they said, okay, if you want it now, what you can do is you can play the mandolin for now. It's the same, only smaller. And when you're 12, you can change to electric guitar. And that's how I found myself playing this instrument that in many ways has to do with the path that I chose because it is rooted in both worlds. It is considered to be a classical Western instrument. Vivaldi wrote for the mandolin, even Beethoven and Mozart wrote for the mandolin. And at the same time, it is very folk-oriented. You can find a sort of a mandolin in all of the cultures around us and in general in traditions around the world, whether it's Greece with the buzuki, whether it's Russia with the domra or the balalaika, whether it's Spain with the banduria, or even the states where they use mandolin for bluegrass, or Brazil where they use it for show, or Algier where they use it to play traditional Algerian music. So... It did two things for me. First of all, it opened the opportunities sound-wise to hear a lot of different worlds within this instrument. And the second thing it gave me is that at the end of the day, reaching to being 18, 19, 20, starting my steps in the real musical industry, it suddenly wasn't enough. And I was searching for a bigger palette mm -hmm. I can use 
which led me to arranging and composing and conducting, uh, which became my main deal. When was your first exposure to Andalusian music? So talking about Andalusian music today, we are referring to music that was created 500 years ago, an area in southern Spain, namely the area of Andalusia, that was under a Muslim regime. And that is considered the highest liturgical peak of Jewish Muslim creation, because you cannot say where the Muslim starts and the Jewish starts and where they end, that they are all blended in, both music-wise and also text-wise. So anyway, being an 18-year-old in the Jerusalem Academy and understanding suddenly that the world of playing the Hummel Concerto for mandolin with the, the best orchestras in Israel is not necessarily my dream. And even though I love it, it's not what I'm looking for with regards to my connection with an audience and with regards to the creation I want to be a part of. I started searching for other styles of music. I found myself investigating and, and learning a lot of, of Balkan and Gypsy music. And the other hand of this process of search was going to Andalusian music and starting to learn it through an orchestra, which I have the privilege to be head conductor and artistic director of. Do you speak Arabic? Yes. What inspired you to study? It started from the fact that I deal with music that comes from Arab countries. So if you really want to be able to arrange or to write music, you need to understand what is the context you're working with. Second, as my career went wider and bigger, I started collaborating with people from the Arab world, specifically Morocco, where I have an orchestra as well, but also other parts of the world, including countries that Israel have no diplomatic relations with. But as you know, there is no issue for me and Syrian, Lebanese or Iranian artists to create music together in Europe, for example. And third, you know, during Corona, I decided that I want to do it more seriously. And I took up lessons and I taught myself how to read and write and speak better because I think it's important. I think that like the music and like the food, this language is a bridge between us and our neighbors. We are dealing constantly the conflict between Israel and its neighbors, which is a very deep and complex thing, but it's also only a story of the last hundred years. And if you look at the hundred years before that, you see very long periods that both your ancestors and my ancestors, Arabic was their language and, and Arabic culture was their culture. And the music that I'm dealing with, on one hand, it's true. It is the classical music of Egypt, of Iraq, of Lebanon, Syria, or Morocco, but it's also the language and the culture of my ancestors and my friends' ancestors. And at certain points, it's not always that simple, but enables me to bridge and even ignore the conflict in a way and say, okay, let's put this story on the side. This is not for us to deal with, but let's talk about what we share. Because at the end of the day, me and a Lebanese guy that I would meet today for lunch have so much more in common than me and a Swedish guy that can be the nicest person in the world, but his culture is something that is so far from me. It fascinates me, but it's not mine in any way. What was the moment that you decided to become a conductor? 
I had a girlfriend whom I loved very much that came from a very rich family. We lived here in Tel Aviv in a big penthouse that her father built. There was a long period where, where we were missing each other constantly because as a young musician, I would go every morning to the university, study until four or five, then go on and have a concert somewhere when we're not talking about concerts like the ones I'm doing today in the Israeli opera or, or, or uh, in halls uh, I'm talking about bar mitzvahs, uh, <laughs> uh, playing background music in restaurants, you know, doing whatever I need and whatever I can just to play and to earn my living. And her friends at work were constantly mocking her for, you don't really have a boyfriend. You just tell us you have a boyfriend, but we've never seen him. And then she booked a long weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, together with her colleagues from work. We were supposed all to go to the north and have this vacation. And I remember the phone call that I got from the person who was at the time artistic director of, of the Andalusian Orchestra. They told me, look, we are starting a new project. We will create a concert and this concert will play every Wednesday for two months. I don't know if you conduct or not, but I thought about you to do it. I think you are an, a good character to lead this. There are two rehearsals, this Thursday and this Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, You're of no longer together, let me guess. <laughs> you, you guessed right. Uh, I automatically said, yeah, of course I conduct. <laughs> Of course, and, I conduct and of, of course, course, I'm available. Yeah, of course. And of course, I'm free. And yeah, that was the end of that relationship. But it also was the beginning of my new career. Suddenly, I finished these two months of doing this project every Wednesday, suddenly as a conductor. At 26, I became head conductor and artistic director of the orchestra. How did they accept your leadership? You were very young. And some of these... players are pretty old. I started in the orchestra as an arranger and as a conductor, but at the same time, when I understood that this body exists, I also started playing mandolin there. Tactically, it was to make money and to make a living, but strategically, it was actually a way to learn this music from the old generation, sitting with the musicians on stage and learning the music through my hands and through my ears and through my body and by performing it and by listening to them playing in rehearsals and talking to them and, and exchanging with them. And my role within the orchestra became bigger and bigger, even though I was significantly younger. All the rest of the people were double my age at minimum. My role became more and more significant. And there was this specific moment of a crack between the management of the orchestra and the musicians. And I, because I had a, a lot less or nothing to lose, and because I saw my future in many other different places, I said to myself, okay, I will lead the people. I will lead them to get better salaries, to get treated better, to get treated as the artists they deserve to be. And, and, and in my scenario, in my realistic scenario that I've imagined at the time, There should have been this kind of compromise where everybody would make more money. I would get fired. I would get my compensations and start my other, my, continue my journey in other places. And somehow, you know, we, we make plans and, and, and God laughs. Somehow the people stuck to me. We started with talking about leadership. The people believed in me really and, and in my intentions and, and in my ability to, to take them through this journey. And 
It is studied today in schools, in classes about unionized work, because we did a real process where we unionized when we decided to fight for our rights. And at a certain point, all of the musicians went on a strike supported by the Israeli Workers' Union. Should I, should I give the like, yeah, full disclosure? Your yeah. father, the dear David Galanos, was at the time the head of the artists' union within the Workers' Union. And he was a character that influenced me greatly, taught me so much about life and about politics and about how the real world works and how you need to function within this world because I came very naive and, and very much only about music and, and the good that we can all share. The moment we were fired, basically the workers' union told us, okay, let's all go to court and bring you back to work because it's illegal to fire people on strike. And the idea that that was raised and that we were a bunch of people crazy enough to follow this idea and your father, again, was brave enough to support this very strange idea, said, look, we were all fired. This orchestra is subsidized by the government. Let's not try and get back to work, but let's demand the budgets from the country. Let's say we are the orchestra. And you had a very interesting philosophical situation where on one hand you had a legal entity with no workers and musicians, and on the other side you had workers and musicians with no legal entity, and both are coming to the Ministry of Culture and demanding the subsidies, the, the, the money, and we're talking about millions of shekels per year, to, to make this orchestra run. And this process took two years. Again, when you are very young, you constantly believe that it's a matter of two weeks till it's solved. It's, <laughs> it was the longest two weeks that ever ha happened to me in my life. But uh, at the end of these two years, first the Ministry of Culture, then the Ministry of Justice, and then it went all the way to the Israeli Supreme Court. We were recognized as, by the government as the orchestra. And suddenly I found myself at 26 going out of this process, being an artistic director and head conductor of an orchestra and having all these people that are now not only my family, because we really pass through things together that you cannot, experiences that you don't get a chance to, to, to experience with people on your normal daily life. Not only were we were entangled with each other and we were one, we were also starting suddenly a process, you know, in, in, in American movies, at the end of the movie, the hero stands with all his men and women on front of the, in front of the, like the, the ruins of, of after the big fight where they won, the sun rises up in the sky, the credits go up and the movie ended. We were there the moment where the credits ran already and then you need to, okay, guys, we need to start cleaning up. Here. <laughs> <laughs> the movie is not over, it's just beginning. It just begun and then, and then you understand really how how complicated life are and how it is so easy to fight together but building together is a lot more complicated and and I'm I'm happy to say we did it well and we and we managed you know big part of the these people some of them are are not anymore with us some of them passed away some of them a big percentage of them already retired but the story and the legacy and this feeling of family is something that stayed very strong within the orchestra and I think it resonates when you see us on stage, when you hear our product, our music at the end of the day. So Tom, you're almost 15 years in, in, in this journey. Have you reached the top? Is it, <laughs> is it just the beginning? What's your vision for this? I would never feel 
that I reached anything on the concrete. It's constantly feeling like the first step in the journey. My biggest curse is the fact that I'm constantly looking for so much more and I'm constantly feeling that there is so much more potential to this journey and to this orchestra and to the musical language and to everything it represents both musically and you know my ideas and my dream go so much far beyond that I, I constantly remember the fact that the Cold War relationship between China and the States warmed up through a group of ping pong players who traveled after the Olympics who traveled to China to play ping pong there and in many ways I would love to be that ping pong delegation dealing with art and culture that we share I grew up as a kid thinking I would change the world. I understood I will not change the world. But from that understanding, it brought me to an, a clearer understanding that is very, not only profound, but also very practical. I'm trying to do good, but real good, real change for the smallest group of people I can. I can think of the fact that we were the first Israeli body to bring Arabic music into the Israeli playlist on the radio. I cannot make the mistake and think that I'm changing the world, but at the same time, I can also not ignore the fact that there is small change done. What was the main challenge that you dealt with in the last 15 years with the orchestra? During COVID, when the whole world stopped suddenly, we moved very quickly into the digital realm. Me being this kind of person who cannot rest and the fact that we were really trying to cling on our reality and everybody were afraid that the world is changing. We started creating a lot of content for online. We had a very big archive of stuff that we filmed and mixed and recorded. And we had a big will to create a lot of content. And very quickly, we understood that when I went into the digital realm, while, for example, the Israel Philharmonic was considered to be one of the 10 best classical, Western classical orchestras in the world, suddenly goes there and has to compete with the Berlin Philharmonic or the LA Phil or the New York Phil. Unlike them, suddenly I, I'm going to the digital realm as the Jerusalem Orchestra East and West and I'm unique and I shine in my uniqueness. And the numbers and the exposure that we got through this period of COVID stayed with us till this moment and is still affecting immensely our presence, both online and our international presence. And the peak of it was really that one producer from London that was exposed to us during the COVID period have gathered the fans to invite us to play in the Barbican. He convinced the Barbican, one of the biggest venues in the world for Western classical music, that this orchestra should come play there. Originally, in our initial talk, he said, look, it's built of three platforms. All in all, it's a 2,000-seat hall. What we do is we close with curtains, the two upper porches. So, so you have only the ground floor. It contains about 800 people. Let's say five, 600 people will come. It will look dignified. You will not feel like the big hall is empty. Come, come to London. We'll do it first. We'll see how it works. The concert was sold out three weeks in advance. 2,000 seats full with people that came to see the Jerusalem Orchestra playing with artists that came especially for Morocco for the concert, a very big Jewish community, a very big Moroccan Muslim community, very big general English community who are just music lovers. And suddenly I understand that I'm coming there as a success story rather than as somebody trying to see if it will underdog. work or not, as an, yeah, as an underdog who's getting a chance. 
And this moment on stage, seeing the standing ovation, the concert finished with looking at my friends, understanding that we need to continue following our dreams. The path is being materialized in front of us. We just need to continue doing it. And it was a very important moment for me. Now I'd like to ask you a few questions that we ask each of our guests, starting with what piece of advice you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? <laughs> the biggest advice I should have gotten is that the journey itself is something you need to enjoy and appreciate very much. During the preparation for a concert, I cannot enjoy because I'm, I mean, I, I love the process, but, but there is the stress of creating this thing and making all this big machine with all these people. After the concert is over, you cannot enjoy it because that's it. It's done already. How much time can you say, wow, I was so great yesterday. It's not relevant anymore. And you have the new goal in front of you and the new stress of the new goal. So basically, the only moment you can really enjoy is in real time on stage while performing. What is one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? Aha. Uh -huh. People are sometimes very surprised with how accessible I am in real life because I'm very hard to reach practically. I travel a lot and I don't answer my phone and, and I'm very busy constantly. But at the end of the day, one-on-one, -on -one, normal interaction with people, I don't feel like I am different or special in any way. What are you currently obsessed with? My son. My son is six and a half years old. He's fascinated with math and with astronomy. And I'm constantly falling in love with the process of doing this together and, and of spending this time with him and seeing how much he's curious and how much he's evolving from one day to the other. And last but not least, what are you most optimistic about? <laughs> My son. <laughs> <laughs> If there is something that makes me <laughs> optimistic about this future is this boy and his curiosity. Tom Cohen, it was so great to have you on our show. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Gil. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find a transcript of today's episode, along with past interviews, on our website, storymarkpodcast.org. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrex Studios. iTrex is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit itrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Patrick Emil, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and let's go out. See you next time. Thank you.